The story of Megillat Esther seems entirely fantastical. It boasts elaborate parties, a contest for Queen of Persia, assassination attempts, political intrigue, evil villains, and inspiring heroes. But beneath the familiar narrative lies a sinister plot to commit genocide. Modern history makes this story all too real. The Gemara and Megillah, Dafyud Gimel Amad Bet, through Yadalad Amad Aleph, reads as follows. Quotes a pasuk from Esther, Vayomer HaMelech LeHaman, HaKesef Natun Lach, VeHaAm LaSot Bo, HaTov Beinecha. So Achashverosh responds to Haman's plan, his proposal to destroy the Jewish people, and he says, the money is given to you, and this nation you can do with them as you see fit. So Amar Rabbi Abba, Rabbi Abba says, Mashal, there is an analogy here. For the collaboration here between Ahasuerus and Haman. What's, what is this like? So the matter is likened to two people. One who has a big mound in his field, and another that has a ditch or a big hole in his field. Bal Charitz Amar, Mi Tainli Tal Zeh, Bedamim. So the one who has this big mound says, Who will give me a, a mound? Uh, I'm happy to pay for it. Bal Hatal Amar, Mi Tainli Charitz Zeh, Bedamim. And the one who has the mound says, Who will give me a, a ditch or a hole with uh, for money? I'm happy to pay for it. The Yamim, one day they uh, encountered one another and, and paired up. So the one with the ditch says, sell me your mound. And the one with the mound says, uh, no, take it, take it for free. This works out great for both of us. So uh, this is a very strange analogy at first glance, but Rabbi Ava is offering this analogy to help us understand how Haman and Achashverosh determined together to commit genocide. They each looked at the Jewish people from a distinct perspective. However, they nonetheless found a common ground to collaborate and pursue their destruction. So on the one hand, Achashverosh had a respect and awe for the Jewish people. According to our sages, Mordechai was a respected member of the king's court. Ahasuerus is praised for not acting brashly, but carefully seeking input before making a decision. That was one of his uh, perhaps few positive qualities. During the Vashti scandal, where Vashti refuses to appear during the party, he consults with his advisors, but the first advisors he consults with were actually the Jewish sages, and they were sought out for their counsel. As the Gemara records, lechachamim. The, the Megillah says he consulted the sages. Man chachamim. Who were these sages? Rabbanan. They were the rabbis. Yodei ha'itim. They were the ones that know the times, which is the way they're described in the Megillah. Shiyodin la'avor shanim chodashim. They understood the calendar and they set up different years and set up months. They were known to be able to to calculate uh, the calendar, and as thus, 
they were known as the Chachamim Yodei Haitim. They were known as the sages who knew the times. And that's who Ahasuerus consulted with. So this is very different than Haman. Haman despised the Jews. He was on a quest to dominate the corridors of power. A group of people who, quote, had a different religion from the rest of the nation, end quote, who thought independently, would only be in his way. Someone like Mordechai, who the king respected, who at times had the king's ear, was a distinct threat to Haman. So in summary, Ahasuerus looked at the Jews as an asset, but one that didn't fit with his preferred landscape. Certain qualities he observed or projected onto the Jews made him uncomfortable and conflicted. People prefer to compete on an even playing field. Haman viewed the Jews as an obstacle. He needed them out of the picture so he could continue to solidify his power. He made a proposal to the king, and it was accepted and stamped with his approval. These two perspectives can be espoused by the same individual or group. They need not be consistent or compatible, only expedient. Here are two comments from Haman's wife Zeresh and his inner circle that appear just a chapter apart in the Megillah. They read, So Zeresh, his wife, and all his uh, beloved, again, like I described, that's his, his inner circle, his cronies, what do they tell him to do? Yasu eats, gavoa chamishim ama, make a gallows that is fifty feet high. Vaboker in the morning, and Morlamelech say to the king, vijluet Mordechai alav, and hang Mordechai on the gallows. Uvo imhamelech el hamishta sameach, and then go to the party that you've been invited to with Esther, happy, rejoicing. Vayitav hadavar lifnei Haman vayas haetz, and this matter was good in the eyes of Haman. And he made, the, he made the gallows. Just a chapter later, after Haman has been embarrassed having to lead Mordechai through the streets at the king's suggestion, he comes back to his house and he tells them what happened. And they respond. So Haman told the story to, to his wife, Zeresh, and all, all his beloved all that happened, and they said to him, his advisors and his wife Zeresh, if Mordechai is a from the seed of the Jews, as if Mordechai throughout the Megillah has already been uh, explained and referred to as Mordechai the Jew, there was no mystery about his uh, his ancestry, but nonetheless, if Mordechai is from the seed of the Jews, that you have now begun to fall in front of him. You will not be able to overcome him. You will surely fall in front of him. So these contrasting perspectives expressed by the same individual and, and same group are at first hard to understand. The first sentiment they suggested was simply to hang Mordechai since he stands in Haman's way then Haman could really enjoy the king's party. The second sentiment was that Mordechai cannot be overcome because he's Jewish. How could it be that on one day they encouraged Haman to build a public gallows and hang Mordechai, and on the next day they all agreed that it is impossible to prevail against Mordechai because he's a Jew? So Barry Weiss helps us answer this question in her book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, and carries our ancient story 
into modern times. And here I'll quote from the book on page 32. It reads as follows. While racists or homophobes see, see themselves as punching down, anti-Semites often see themselves as punching up. In the eyes of the racist, the person is inferior. In the eyes of the misogynist, the woman is something less than human. In the eyes of the anti-Semite, the Jew is everything. He's whatever the anti-Semite needs him to be. Anti-Semitism successfully turns the Jew into the symbol of whatever a given civilization defines as its most sinister and threatening qualities. When you look through this dark lens, you can understand how, under communism, the Jews were capitalists, how under Nazism, Jews were race contaminators. And today, when the greatest sins are racism and colonialism, Israel, the Jew among the nations, is being demonized as the last bastion of white racist colonialism, a unique source of evil, not just in the region, but in the world. Whatever role the Jews are needed to for, well, that is the part they are forced to play. So that's end, end quote. And this is a sadly familiar narrative. Jews throughout history have been cast in the role of superhuman or subhuman. These roles are used for political purposes, for convenience, viewing the Jews as pawns for the powerful. This is an affront to our innate humanity, our basic human dignity, which is neither super nor subpar. Pamela Paretsky observes another modern expression. She writes in a recent article called Critical Race Theory and the Hyperwhite Jew that appeared in Sapir, quote, Jews, who have never been seen as white by those for whom white is a moral good, are now seen as white by those for whom whiteness is an unmitigated evil. This reflects the nature of anti-Semitism. No matter the grievance or the identity of the aggrieved, Jews are held responsible. And she continues, but if this is to change, it will take a concerted effort by Jewish leaders, individuals, and organizations to remind us all that we are not characters in other scripts. We are not required to play the parts that others have written. We can and we must reject any identity and any worldview that is inconsistent with our own past and our own social justice history. Jewish values and habits of mind are among the gifts of our heritage. Only when we are true to who we are and strive to be as Jews can we do our part to repair the world. End quote. The story of Purim is about a woman of profound dignity and courage who flips the script. She refuses to limit herself to her assigned role. With intelligence, savvy, and divine assistance, she masters the circumstances dictated to her by others. She faces down injustice and evil, averts genocide, and saves the Jewish people, restoring humanity to her kingdom. I'll end with the two closing pasukim from the Megillah. Megillah writes in Perak Tet, Pasuk Aleph 9.1, and in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day thereof, when the king's orders and an edict were ready to be put into execution, on that day that the Jews' enemies looked forward to ruling over them, and it was upended, it was flipped. The Jews 
end up ruling over their enemies. Then it continues on uh, Perik, or Pasuk 22, Pasuk Chafbet, a few verses later, As the days when the Jews rested from their enemies, in the month that was flipped for them from grief to joy, and from mourning to festivity, to make on them days of feasting and joy. And we send gifts one to another and give gifts to the poor. 